Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is a bonus episode with Seven Investing. We have two advisors from the team, Simon Erickson, as you may have listened to before, but we also have Christoph, uh, and I am blanking on his last name. I apologize, Christoph. The spelling on that is very difficult. We have the two advisors on the show today, um, and Ryan is actually in doing something right now. So it's just going to be in the intro, but he is joining the show as well. We cover semiconductors and biotech stocks, as well as get an update on how things are going at Seven Investing and how they are navigating the market. Um, and you know that there are exclusive sponsor, our presenting sponsors through the end of 2022. We talk about that during the episode. So I won't give a big ad pitch now because that you know Simon will go over how Seven Investing works while we interview him. But use code MONEY. We talk about this during the show as well to get $100 off your annual subscription every year for life. That is a 25% discount. Code MONEY, uh, the link and spelling of that. I think everyone can spell money, but the link and spelling of that are going to be in the show notes. All right, we, we're, let's get to it. Let's talk with Simon and Christo. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the, well, this is a bonus episode. So this is not a regular recurring uh, episode on Chit Chat Money, but we have our friends from Seven Investing, uh, our exclusive sponsor through the end of 2022. You'll hear our spiel at the beginning of the show, but we'll talk about it again at the end um, as well. Simon, Christoph, how are you guys doing today? Doing fantastic, Brett. Excited to be on your show. Thanks for having us here today. Yeah, the pleasure is all ours. All right. This is the first time Christoph's on the show. So we're going to have him be introduced and we have Ryan as well, as always. Uh, but we're going to do a update on seven investing, kind of what you guys have been doing lately. And then we're going to hit some topics, which are semiconductors and biotech, which is two things that you guys cover. Uh, you know, some of the sectors that you guys cover uh, over at seven investing. So first off, um, I guess any update generally on seven investing, maybe Sam, we'll start with you. How are you guys navigating the current market? and the the huge drawdown that has been across the growth tech software space. Uh, yeah, Brett. So Christoph and I are both from Texas. So perhaps the uh, the weather pattern that I'll use to describe it is a class five hurricane, right? This is a category five that's been blowing through the markets in 2022. I don't think it's been fun for any investors. Um, you know, as kind of a reminder, it, it, this the market is always forward-looking, right? A lot of people have seen drawdowns, as you mentioned, that have been pretty significant this year across the board, even the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and broad-based indexes. Um, you know, they, they've suffered this year. There's been kind of a reset of a lot of valuations, and now we've even seen some earnings contraction here. I, I do think it's important to remember, though, that the market doesn't really care, you know, what your cost basis is. It doesn't care what happened in 2021 or in what 2022 uh, has happened thus far. It is always forward-looking. And I think that as we are framing things as investors today, on October 25th, 2022, we have to say, what is the new normal for the stock market? Where are we today? What are we in terms of fundamentals of these businesses? We have higher capital costs because we've seen interest rates increasing right now. 
We see a slowdown in a lot of tech companies on new projects and new growth because money isn't free anymore. But on the other hand, there is also a camp, now that I've gone through the pessimism and all the terrible stuff of the front side of this hurricane that's blowing through, let's talk about the hurricane tailwinds that are still out there in the market today. And you know, a lot of the things that we look for, especially Christoph and I, we'll talk about it several of them on this show, is that innovation doesn't just stop when you have a tough year in the stock market, right? The, if the S&P is down by 30% or NASDAQ, you know, several companies fall 50% or 60%, it doesn't mean that technology stops moving forward and the companies stop trying to innovate and do new things. And so a lot of the things that we do is, you know, what are these best in class companies that will benefit from the other side of this hurricane, the tailwinds that are out there? Um, we, we tend to think that there are a lot of opportunities. We even have been ranking a lot of our own recommendations in terms of the level of conviction that we have in them. And of course, when stock market valuations are more attractive, you're getting a better price on a fantastic company. So Overall, I would say it's just, you know, kind of, you know, reestablish your footing and say, what is the new normal now? Where are the opportunities? And let's look forward at where those opportunities are for individual investors like we are. Now, you mentioned the conviction ratings before we move on to the next topic. Do you want to talk about maybe the strong buy portfolio that you guys have rolled out over the last couple of months, I want to say, and, you know, how that is supposed to help people navigate with you know, just as a pitch, you guys do have hundreds of research reports out there, but this one, uh, and add anything if I'm getting it wrong, can help, you know, people at this certain time know what you guys think are the best buys now. Yeah. And and maybe just for anyone who's not familiar with it, what exactly is that best buy portfolio? How do you like determine what, what the buys are? Yeah. So one of the, the neatest things about our, our group is that um, we've got really smart advisors like Christoph and then six others, you know, there's seven total of us on the team. And every month we pitch our very best idea in the stock market. And so if you can imagine over the two and a half years that Seven Investing has been in existence, we've now done diligence on more than 200 unique companies, right? They've come up at different times. You know, we've re-recommended some. We've really turned over a lot of stones and found some some good stocks out there. And one of the, uh, I guess, criticisms, maybe you could call it that, of, of people that are really interested, but they just say, hey, I don't have the time to keep up with with all of these companies. I can't go out and buy 200 companies right now. What are your very best ideas? Uh, and so we, in addition to having new, new picks come out every month like we do, we said, well, what if we started putting conviction ratings on these where you could differentiate a company that might be going through some struggles, you know, it was a great opportunity two years ago, but it's having a tough time right now. We might call something like that a hold. Uh, whereas another company that we think is doing fantastic and is selling at a more attractive valuation, that might be a strong buy. And then we even took it one step further, as you mentioned there, Ryan, is um, we said, what if we put a pool of all of the strong buys together? And then we, fam- we came up with a methodical way to actually force rank them, come up with our very, very highest conviction ideas. This entire team would chime in. We'd have a methodical way of force ranking them. And we put our 20 highest conviction ideas into a real into a portfolio, into a trackable portfolio. And we, we tracked it and we published all the picks and we put why we put them in there. And we have been updating that on a quarterly basis for two quarters now. We just this past month did the most recent refresh and we have our 20 highest conviction ideas and we're calling that the strong buy portfolio. All right. Uh, Christoph's anything to add there? I know Simon, you know, he runs the show there, so he has the, the spiel going, but uh, anything else to add? It's hard to top Simon's wisdom. The only thing I'll add is it, it seems to me in bad markets, 
it's easy to say something like I'm a long-term investor, but it's much harder to actually do it. And it's such a common phrase that many people, I think, without true understanding or true conviction in it are easily spooked away from it. And so for my part, when I recommend a company, I really truly am thinking, can this company be wildly successful five years from now? Will it still be around five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now? Because that's where the greatest alpha is going to come from. And so because all of the daily stuff we come across is short term and quite noisy, I think it's very easy to get distracted. And so yeah. there has to be a fundamental, deep confidence, or at least probabilistic reason for me to say, this company will be thriving five years from now. If I can't see that, I won't recommend it. All right. That's a great overview. Uh, yeah. And having that anchor, that long-term anchor is very, very important, especially in markets like today. But let's move on to the next topic. Um, I want to get both of you guys' answers here. We'll start with Simon. What sectors of the market interest you at the moment? One of the trends that I really think is pretty exciting right now, Brett, is, is electric vehicles. You know, this is something that kind of gets a lot of buzz. It's kind of sexy, right? Everyone wants to talk about how they're better for the environment. You know, Tesla's kind of a you know a hot company that's out there. But I, I also think that it's very interesting because we are recreating the automobile. We are not just incrementally improving internal combustion engine that's been around for a century now. Now, this is a completely different supply chain. This is a chance to start from scratch and create a more efficient vehicle. And of course, the um, the foundation of an electric vehicle is the battery, right? And there's a bunch of other components that are not necessarily the same components that are just modified from what we've been using before. Uh, that kind of levels the playing field for a lot of companies that are out there, either the ones that are selling the end vehicles uh, like the Teslas or the Lucids or the Rivians, or even in China, you know, the BYDs or the NEOs, uh, these have been ones that have benefited from government subsidies for years. And now they're ready to economically take on the largest car manufacturers head to head. Um, they're, they're economical enough that you can get price points in consumers' hands and, you know, tout the benefits of electric vehicles. I, I'm somebody who worked in a, at a large oil company that, you know, was supplying fuels for internal combustion engine transportation cars. And then also was ahead of the curve, I, I would like to say very innovative in looking at some renewable energies and even looking at electric vehicles and efficiencies. And it's happening, you know, we're starting to see kind of the S curve. Uh, there's this point of inflection right now of seeing this market that is $380 billion last year. It's about a 10th of the size of the $4 trillion of the, of the overall automotive uh, industry. But it's one that's grown over 122X over the past decade, you know, it used to be a, a decade ago, you get the Nissan Leaf, and not a whole bunch of other EV models. Now you could see, you know, the Tesla introduced the Roadster and the S and the X and the Model 3 and everything else since then. And now basically every large OEM in the, in the world has got an electric vehicle that's commercially available or that will be commercially available within the next five years. And to secure supply and make sure that they are able to sell the volumes that they want to to make this economical you've got to have those picks and shovels and those vendor agreements in place it's very similar in my opinion to what happened in the solar industry where solar pv has just taken off point of inflection over the past decade or so we're starting to see another one of those in electric vehicles and i'm pretty excited about not just like i said the automakers 
but a lot of the companies that are making this trend possible. All right, Christoph, um, anything to add there? Any other sectors you're interested in? Yeah, uh, I'd like to, I guess, keep it simple. And um, sometimes it seems like investors want to get clever and, <laughs> you know, pull miracles out of out of the ground. But um, sometimes the most obvious thing is the most lucrative. And I'm thinking of cybersecurity. The world is still transitioning into the cloud. All businesses are moving into the cloud. You have actors like, you know, obviously individual actors, individual collectives, but then you have the world at war with itself using cybercrime and as, you know, one of the most dangerous weapons in the in present. And if you, you're a business, you cannot have an existential risk. You know, you, you have to, you, you, I mean, you cannot not have a cybersecurity fortress or else you die. And so when I think of budgets, you know, it's the last thing that's going to get cut. Um, g- given that, you know, uh, it, it's <laughs> it's almost a, when I say this out loud, it's a I have this voice that says, "Where? What else would I be interested in?" <laughs> I mean, to me, it's almost so so. You know, look at the things that are that are non negotiable first. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a good framework. What a uh... So, Christoph, it's your first time really on the show, and I, I've read a couple of your articles, but we haven't really got chance to to speak. Uh, I guess this one to be in person, but via Zoom. Can you tell tell us more about like your investing style? How would you kind of characterize yourself? Um, what do you typically look for when you're analyzing potential investments? Yeah, I think of myself as a systems thinker. Uh, who tries to be flexible and not limiting um, not limiting myself to say one particular industry. So with a little bit of counterintuitive thinking and um, yeah, I mean without I don't want to pigeon my whole myself into any one one corner. And so when I say systems thinking, I mean oftentimes, things that are complex and have qualities that are not yet visible, but will be visible later on paradigm shifts areas where the paradigm is just starting to shift, but the end result is not yet there. That's where I'm looking. So I'm, I'm going to be the recommendations you'll see from me will be in multiple industries, but there will be a reason why I think usually underneath that, I'm going to say to myself, the sum of the parts here, will add up to a greater hole down the road, but that hole is not yet visible for whatever reason. Can I chime in on this too, Ryan? Would you mind if I go, chime go in for on it. this? Okay. So uh, just to add some context, you know, um, before Christoph even became an advisor with seven investing, he was actually the only person that we allowed to write articles on our site. He's the only external writer we ever had because I was just amazed at his uh, how impressive his writing was, especially his decision-making framework that he had. Uh, you know, Christoph, as a compliment to you, has done a fantastic job of kind of getting into the second and third layer of things. And so he's not afraid to find trends. We mentioned cybersecurity, but it's not just 
surface level revenue growth, it's kind of peeling back the onion, getting to the third layer of what's going on in a company's earnings release. And how does that matter when you're looking at, you know, what's going on in the bigger framework of innovation in this industry? I always think Christoph did a fantastic job of that. And just even decision-making as investors, uh, you know, why do we buy companies? What are we looking for from this? Is it an opportunity to buy when the stock sells off or do we need to step back and separate out the signal from the noise? Uh, he, he does a fantastic job with that. And it's really been a pleasure working with him, having him as an advisor now too, and seeing the frameworks of how he picks companies. All right, that's a that's a great, great compliment there. And if you guys want uh, any listeners here to hear these two and the five other dedicated advisors use our code MONEY uh, to get $100 off your annual subscription for life, only for a limited time. So if you want that discount, get a great service, use code money for life. All right, let's move on to some interesting topics here uh, because we can't talk about philosophy all day. Uh, we've seen a lot of earnings, I think, from semiconductors. You know, the last, I don't think every company has reported, but at least some of the big ones have Taiwan Semiconductor, I think, uh, ASML, uh, LAM Research, and a little while ago is Applied Materials. You guys cover both of these. Um, I guess we'll start with Simon and then go to Christoph. Any big takeaways? Uh, and is the supply crunch over? And then we'll have a few follow-ups as well. Yeah, there's an oversupply of, of chips in the market right now, right? So this is a cyclical industry. We know that. Uh, we've heard the same message from AMD that we did from NVIDIA, that we did from Micron, that we just heard from Taiwan Simi and Intel too, which is that a lot of the chip designers uh, aren't able to, to sell to the end users, right? PCs are not selling at the same pace as they were before. Uh, things that chips were that were they were going into, uh, you know, we're not seeing the same demand as typically. So you got an inventory buildup, and that's that's cyclical, right? It slows down sales for the short term. But but again, we know this. We know that the semiconductors are cyclical, and this is nothing new. Um, the interesting piece for me is that the highest performance, most cutting edge chips are not as exposed to the cyclicality and inventory builds, right? So if you are a Taiwan semiconductor. Uh, you are basically responsible for more than 50% of the world's chips that are produced. Samsung's about 30% and the rest of the manufacturers out there about 20%, everybody, including Intel. And so if you're able to produce, you know, two and three nanometer node process technology chips, right? The most cutting edge chips out there, they're going to Apple smartphones, they're going to Amazon's data centers. These things are not quite as cyclical and the companies that are either designing or manufacturing those that's where they're getting their margins and that's where they're getting the selling prices from. And even though smartphones are gonna slow down a little bit, high performance computing data center is not slowing down for most of these chip makers. Um, you're seeing some of those companies losing share in the data center like Intel, some companies gaining share in some of those markets like AMD. And then at the end of the day, if you're the manufacturer, if you're Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, you're lining up long-term contracts for volume for whoever wants to pay you to get production lines, right? It doesn't matter to you if you're Taiwan Sim, if you're making them for AMD or NVIDIA or Intel or whoever else wants to, to be the design for those, uh, you're going to get your money from it anyway. And then at the end of the day, you've also got the applications, right? The companies like Amazon that want Alexa to have cutting edge chips. Apologies if I just set off the name for anybody who's listening to this right now, but you know, <laughs> stuff like that, it's got to have the horsepower to do whatever it is that you want to at the end of the day. Um, so pulling all that together, uh, less complex chips, oversupplied, probably still going to take several more quarters to work that out. Cutting edge, leading technology chips, not as exposed to the cyclicality. Um, but again, even, even chips as, a, as an industry has got sub-segments within that. I think investors should pay attention to things like that. 
Right. Uh, Christoph, anything, any big takeaways from the semiconductor earnings? Yeah, I'll say briefly, ASML, after it reported earnings, was up 17% on the week. Why? Because they said, I don't, we don't know about, you know, individual small parts, but there is absolutely no shortage of demand for the machines that make the machines. And so this is where I'm going to put the practice, you know, to the theory. If you think five years out, with the paradigm shift that is AI and everything that chips enable, this this uh, supply glut, if if you will, will just be a bump in the road. I just can't see the argument that would be counter to that. I cannot fathom where <laughs> where the these knots don't resolve themselves. So I kind of like I put it in the noise bucket and say. Uh, ASML is proving that the, that this is temporary. All right. And I want to see hear both of you guys' um, thoughts on this. I think a lot of people listening, if they cover semiconductors, the, they've heard about the China stuff. Uh, the US and China are in pretty big war over semiconductors right now. Not a literal war, but kind of a continuance of the trade war. A lot of people think that's a big downside for some of these companies as they sell a lot of equipment to China or uh other various, you know, they're actually selling chips to China, whatever. TSMC has the China risk because they're in Taiwan and China has talked about invading uh, the country. I kind of, as someone that doesn't cover the industry much, but is interested in, I kind of think over the long run, if China, the China risk actually materializes and say they get cut off from the Western world that makes chips in the short run, that'd be bad. But in the long run, it would actually be a good thing because, you know, there's more demand. There's gonna you're gonna have to rebuild all the supply chains, and that's gonna be great for the equipment companies and the Western chip manufacturers. But I want to hear you guys' thoughts, Simon. Uh, why don't you go first? It's a complex question. Uh, there is no doubt this is a geopolitical at the at the core of it, right? If you're making high performance chips that are going into your data centers or your fighter jets or anything else that might have a national security implication, uh, you you've got to make sure that first of all you're gonna get supply, you, you need those chips, and you want to make sure that your country gets the most cutting edge chips. And this has led to a lot of, um, you know, back and forth geopolitical issues with, with the US and China right now, right? At first, the US said, you know, hey, Huawei, you cannot be in telecom equipment that is of, of secu security importance, uh, because of backdoor vulnerabilities, it might be in the code that goes into the hardware that goes into telecom stuff. Uh, Byte Dance, the owner of TikTok, you know, we, we saw some some uh some spats about you know that and where the data centers could be used and what kind of data they were collecting uh, us is saying that nvidia cannot sell their most cutting edge chips to china right now you know nvidia's uh, ai chips the most the, the most powerful chips they have cannot be sold to china starting at the beginning of next year uh, asml you know like christoph just mentioned is banned from selling the extreme ultraviolet uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines to china right now and the Biden administration is even posturing that maybe they'll stop allowing the deep ultraviolet uh, machinery to to China. So all of this is kind of, you know, uh, we want to have a, a free trade globally. We want to have international uh, cooperation on, on where corporations can sell. But again, you, you've got to you've got other factors that are working into things like this. And now this is something that Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger has been very interested in lately because he says there needs to be regional supply. Everything can't just come from Taiwan anymore. And Intel has been working to try to get money from the U.S. government and the CHIPS Act 
or from the uh, German government or the EU at large. Japan is also very interested in this. You know, how can you have regional supply that secures uh, those volumes that you would need for the demands of whatever you need chips for? Fabs are expensive. They cost $30 billion a piece. It's very expensive for a company to do that. Uh, but if you can get subsidized um, capital expenditures for that you would need for a fabrication facility, that could reduce your own cost of capital and in turn be beneficial for your investors. And so at the end of the day, I agree with Christoph that if you're, if you're ASML, if you're LAM research or you're applied materials, or if you're kind of building the upstream machinery that goes into producing chips, uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter as much to who you're selling it to, what country you're selling it to, as long as you're filling up your own capacities and you're getting the prices that you want to get for them. But it will be interesting downstream for that of, of how that benefits the companies that are manufacturing and using those chips if they get a lower cost of capital out of it. All right, Christoph, anything to add there? I'll mostly defer to Simon since he has way more expertise in this area than I do. But I will mention that, unfortunately, I didn't read it in time because it just arrived in my inbox this week. But there's a new uh, important book about this called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. But that subtitle is, I think, tells you what you need to know. The most critical technology of the, the what century are we in 21st 21st century <laughs> uh i don't think that's an overstatement and when i think of the companies that that will be powering the rest of the world and have a lead and are the leaders in innovation like nvidia they'll be fine they'll figure it out they have to if in fact the thesis is true that it is in fact the most critical technology so like simon said too sometimes when there's so much complexity i like to remain silent you know because it's too pontificating and, and it just gets you more lost than than found so you follow the numbers what are the numbers telling you eventually we'll, this industry will be fine right you almost come back and simplify it and say the world's going to want computer chips we're going to make it somewhere there's only a few companies that can do this. Um, one more follow-up on semiconductors, and it relates to what you were talking about earlier, Simon, is the electric vehicle industry. Do you think this, and they, you know, electric vehicles kind of use the, not, not the cutting edge stuff, so there might be a huge supply boost here. And we know that, you know, the auto supply chains have been hurt because they haven't been able to get enough chips. Do you think that could help move forward the electric vehicle industry? Has that been kind of, because I, I know a lot of people kind of are excited about electric vehicles, but don't really follow it closely. So anything... I guess, Simon, on that, where that could help accelerate the growth of um, the electric vehicle market as, you know, the computer chip supply comes online again. Yeah, Brett, and I give you the uh, the credit for accelerating as an electric vehicle pun. So, so plus there we one. go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, you know, typically how the, the this works is when you do have, you know, all the manufacturer, all the fabs, Thomas Simmons, the uh, the Samsungs of the world. They, they typically invest up front ahead of the cost curve. So they'll bring a whole bunch of capacity online. And the first customer in line is Apple. And Samsung uses it for their own smartphones too, right? Internal supply. They, they, these are cutting edge chips are all the applications that go into your smartphone to run all the apps with minimal battery drain, you know, and all now all the local AI and all the other stuff that's going on. Like that's like the most cutting edge innovative stuff that's out there. Right? This is typically how this works. And then after a while, Apple comes back and they say, hey, I want even better than what you had before. I want more transistors into this integrated circuit that's going to the chip that's on my smartphone. 
And so they'll push the limit even farther. And then that capacity opens up. And you know who fills it up next? The auto industry. The auto industry is next in line to get what used to be the most cutting edge chips or just a step behind the most innovative chips that are in the world. And then from there, you know, you kind of walk your way all the way down until you get into things like, uh, you know, industrial sensors and then washing machines and all these other things that, you know, are, are slower to adopt, adopt innovation, but they get there and eventually they get there. And the whole world, whether you're using a toaster or a cutting edge smartphone is faster and more efficient than it was the previous year. And so electric vehicles are certainly benefiting from that right now. There's a lot of chips that are already going into Tesla's cars. And Tesla is pushing uh, the limits for innovation, you know, in its terms of, of custom chips of what it wants to do. And the rest of the industry is, is certainly uh, picking up on that. And at the end of the day, one of the reasons that Tesla got ahead of the curve was because of COVID. Uh, they accelerated in their innovation because all of the other automakers were pulling back orders because they couldn't sell enough vehicles in 2020 summer. You know, COVID was happening. People weren't buying cars. They said, okay, we just can't produce enough. You know, the Taiwan Simis and the Samsungs of the world, the people that are making the chips to go into cars are saying, okay, that's fine, but you got to get in the back of the line. We're going to let others, you know, fill up our factories because we need to be making chips. And you know who picked up on that really, really quickly was Elon Musk. And he pushed the Model 3 production, not only in the US, but also in China. And there are other electric vehicle makers, Neo being one of them right now, that are using AI chips uh, and using servers that are, have neural networks that are guiding those cars, Neo being one of them, you know, several other companies too, that are benefiting from the trendsetters of this industry. I'm rambling a bit. I'm going perhaps down a little bit of a, of a rabbit hole, but it, hopefully it makes sense that like you see innovation kind of is cutting edge at the beginning and then the rest of the world catches up with it over time. All right, another, I guess, industry that... Uh, we, we tried to group some of these recommendations that you guys have had over the uh, over over I guess the course of all the recommendations you guys have put out um, into a few categories, and so one of those I guess you could group as biotech slash genetics. Um, you both seem to be interested in it. Why is that? What part of the industry really excites you guys? Why don't we start with Christoph this time? Well, I have a bias here because back in the day I was uh, I studied advanced level biology so i'm just pulled in that direction i find it fascinating <clears throat> then you have whatever ai is enabling layered on top of the mind-boggling uh, disruption that is crispr technologies post dna sequencing so it seems to me that we are in this moment of history that might be as radical as any in the in in human history because we're talking about the capacity to change our blueprint and so this has been in the works now well if you think about dna the structure was discovered in 1954 i believe so even that is fairly recent so we're 70 years out from that but then from the sequencing of the genome, call it 20 years ago, we're now, we've been at this for some time, right? But then with the cloning of, of new edited humans in 2018, when that rogue scientist did his thing in China, that ushered in a brand new era. And I think one thing that's hard for humans to wrap their minds around is, you know, when the paradigm actually does shift and it's still not really visible, it's hard to accept. 
like, oh, like we're really, like, this is really happening. And so if you couple that with the severity of the punishment that these stocks have gone through, to me, I smell nothing but opportunity for the companies that have the legitimate thing and they could back up their business performance, you know, with actual numbers rather than anything just pure speculative and, and hopey. And so it's interesting, just I know I'm a little bit of a book nerd, but just today I received uh, Siddhartha uh, Mukherjee's new book. He's the uh, guy who wrote The Gene and The Emperor of Maladies, Pulitzer Prize winning book about cancer. Just today, his new book was released called The Song of the Cell, An Exploration of Medicine in the New Human. So that's a long way of me saying we've heard sci-fi stuff now for some time but i really think the evidence is showing up that it's, it's actually here today and it's at its very early stages and i could not be more fascinated by any industry than this one because we're talking about life and death right we're talking about curing cancer we're talking about curing alzheimer's we're, we're talking about you know, gaining superhuman, I mean, all of it. I mean, it's just sometimes a little bit hard for me to wrap my my mind around it. But as far as industry goes, the companies that succeed might become some of the world's biggest companies. And some of them might not even have been even born yet. Makes sense. Simon? It's pretty cool. I mean, have you guys ever done the uh, 23andMe or the Ancestry? I've I not. I'm a bit scared. <laughs> about the uh the privacy stuff worries me but i know it's super popular and uh you know but I've done, I, I, I know about it. i know what it is i've done the ancestry one or like a family member did and we like got i don't know it was kind of cool to look at the family tree and all that and, and did you learn anything from it ryan was it interesting did you get any insight from the uh, the ancestry one that you did uh yeah i'm like i'm more i guess uh of an international person than i thought i i've got i guess more diverse uh ancestors than i thought so i guess that's kind of cool but i don't know if it really like changed my day-to-day -day life all that much yeah it, it's it, i did the same one that's why i was asking you know and uh i think it was a hundred dollars you know and this is not a whole genome sequence this is uh a genotyping is what they're calling but it's basically like the first time i did it right away it shows the air the, a map of the world and it kind of tracks back your 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 genetics your ancestry right just like the name would suggest and mine was like this giant oval over europe it says okay you're european simon okay great i just wasted 100 bucks man you know what was i thinking at this, this years ago <laughs> but it improved the year the year after and it actually narrowed in on the countries that it was as it learned more about genetics and ancestry it actually showed you know hey simon you've got some german descent you've got some british descent you know uh, mostly you know swedish and and, and denmark but it got better as we learned more about those genes. And it, the reason I bring this up is because, uh, one, I didn't completely waste my money like I thought it did the first year. It actually was more insightful over time. But it's the same thing as just as you're doing things like that, uh, which is kind of a fun experiment. Uh, doctors are now able to do a whole genome sequence for less than $1,000. And in fact, uh, Illumina has got a new um, a new series of machines called the NovaSeq 10 that just came out that can get that down to $200 within a year or two. And, and so for years, you just couldn't, uh, we couldn't see diseases. We couldn't see the DNA of a cancer or a disease or anything else that was in the human body. Like, like Christoph mentioned, uh, this is all kind of new to, to science. And if it 
even if you could see it, it was prohibitively expensive. But now, uh, not only learning about ourselves as human beings, but also being able to characterize these diseases, which are living, which have DNA, a cancerous tumor is a living thing that has DNA in your body. If you can see that, and even fragments of the tumor that's going through the bloodstream today, if you can use that to diagnose what it is, uh, there's a new line of medicine, personalized medicine, specifically monoclonal antibodies can actually train your body your body's immune system, that this is a cancerous tumor that you should be attacking. So go get it. You know, we've got some, some technology that can help you attach to that cancerous tumor and kill it. And this is a, a quantum leap compared to chemotherapy, blasting, you know, these tumors with radiation and killing everything around it. If you can train the body to do what it's meant to do, uh, this new wave of medicine is extremely interesting. And I think to answer the question of why, why interesting, um, the diagnostic piece of this is, is is super important because it's kind of guiding the body's natural defense uh, to what it should be looking at. And again, you know, uh, this is one of the biggest killers in the world. You know, this is cancer. Does you don't need to hear from me that this is an important topic and it's costing a ton of money too, and most of us are not even treating it until way too late. And so, for the world of medicine, for humankind as a, as a whole, and also for the economic impact of this uh, diagnostics for oncology super, super important. I think I'd like to even take that one step further, if I may. I don't know if you guys came across the book Lifespan by David Sinclair. Have not. No. Have not. He's a, a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical, and he's been studying aging for his entire career. And he, he makes an extremely bold claim in the book published in 2018, but he also has a new podcast about this uh, released earlier this year. His claim is that aging itself is a disease. In other words, if you look at the laws of the universe based on physics and chemistry, there is no such thing as aging in there anywhere. Aging happens because our DNA has issues. The upshot is his laboratory in recent years more or less on a rough scale has figured out the pathways to aging. So in mice, they can make a mouse age more quickly and they could, believe it or not, actually help the mouse reverse its age. So we now know this, right, scientifically. Now, obviously the human organism is way more complex, right? But why does that matter? Well, when you have a DNA test, like what you guys were talking about, we know it's all about DNA um, and its corruption. If you then send in your blood work into a company, get it analyzed, there's a thing called the Inside Tracker that David Sinclair is associated with. You get your lab results back and they could tell you based on your genetics, right? they could kind of like fine tune and personalize the things you should be doing, not just in terms of exercise and all this other stuff, but based on your own genes. Point being that the idea of extended lifespan and health span is again, not a sci-fi thing. We can now actually, I mean, according to his claim, if you stay healthy enough during your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, doing the right things, the technology is around the corner to actually help us live longer and not by a few years. 
So the companies that will be able to take advantage of all of these layers via diagnostics, via genetic reading, via call it proscriptive dieting and whatnot are going to be solving what might be the world's most important problem, how not to succumb to the, to the disease called aging. Are there any like, I guess, tells, because the, the opportunity feels huge in, in the space. And I, and it's I just listening to you guys, you can tell why it's such a compelling industry to study, but it would also f- feel easy to pick the wrong companies. And it feels like a lot of these are smaller companies that are fairly speculative. Are there any tells for you guys that go either way, either? Yes, this is valid technology valid technology they have a very real business model this could be something or is there anything that you see it and you think okay that's a big red flag for me yeah ryan i might chime in and say that you know we have got a fantastic advisor on our team named dana abramovitz uh she has she's the one with a phd in biochemistry and the postdoctorate and so a lot of the things that she'll look at she'll see things that that i won't or you know that other investors might not see just because she thinks about things like the mechanism of action of how this drug is actually working, right? What is the what is the condition? What is the uh, disease that you're trying to treat? And then why would this drug work when this other drug might not work? Uh, you know, and, and things like this. Biotechnology is very complex. It's very hard. You know, it, it, she would she would if she was on the show right now, she would say science is hard. And a lot of times, you know, you can go in with a hypothesis and think something's going to work and mother nature just disproves all the, the research and the, and the work that you put into something so far. But even with that in mind, there are things that we've seen. There is immunotherapy, there is CRISPR, there is CAR-T, like some of these big trends that we, we catch a whiff of out there, they're working for, for reasons. You know, there are things that kind of the industry as a whole latches onto and then develops fundamental science that, that carries the, the, the torch forward on things like this. And I think that we're doing, doing a lot better job, and this is something Christoph has talked a lot about too, of matching data through AI to the mechanism of action, to the disease that it should be targeting in the first place. And from those, you know, some of these are, are some of the bigger mutations in you know, the BRCA mutation, you know, small, non-small, non-small cell lung cancer or uh, breast cancer. You know, some of these, these most important ones are getting a, a ton of attention. But as we, as we kind of further the innovation and this wider peripheral vision that we're learning from AI and from the data we're collecting, connecting the dots between genes and, uh, and therapies, you can start going after orphan diseases and something that might only have a couple hundred thousand cases globally and stuff like that, where there was no option before other than chemotherapy or, you know, hope that whatever's out there is going to work. You can actually have a targeted personalized treatment for something like that. That's the exciting part. That's the exciting part of all this is like, you see the science pushing this forward. It's improving the world. And it's not just to, you know, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you're, you're in stage three, stage four cancer, and we're going to do the best that we can. We can get ahead of the game on a lot of this stuff. And it's, really improving the, the lives for, for thousands and millions of people out there. And the one thing I'll add is the question, is there a commercial infrastructure in place to bring these things to market? In other words, can we discern between if this is just a hopeful speculative thing, which is close to what you get in the casino, or is there a management team scale and a whole bunch of you know the business side of things already in place and executing 
And that's how uh, you know you discern. And it's not necessarily, I think, that one is, say, better than the other, but you just need to know what you're getting into, right? If I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a speculative position as something, as long as you're aware that you know the commercial infrastructure is not quite there in place. But if the lab results come back and they're astonishing, then yeah, the stock's going to fly regardless. But but it might not, right? So you know that going in versus something a lot more grounded with a history and the management team with evidence in hand. So just know what you're doing. And All right, Ryan, any, say, oh, oh, Simon, go ahead. Maybe, maybe just one final comment, if you don't mind, Brad, is that, you know, we, we've, we've covered a lot of bases with this, you know, within the last quarter, uh, Christoph has, has recommended a company for seven investing that is along the lines of that infrastructure. He just mentioned, I've recommended a drug developer. Uh, Dana, we mentioned her just a minute ago. She, she's just recommended a company that's working on drug delivery. I mean, there's a lot of innovative companies in healthcare. And, and uh, like Christoph said, it's okay to, to take some swings for the fences. There's, there's a lot of ways to win in this field. All right. Well, we're going to close things out. But before we do, just a little tease. Obviously, don't spoil any recommendations. But in the, say, let's narrow it down to the biotech and semiconductor industries one stock each that you guys have either on the watch list studying you think maybe is interesting for investors to kind of track going forward. Uh, Simon, maybe we'll start with you. Christoph, I saw you give a puzzle look there. So maybe we'll let uh, Simon talk of it. Hopefully, hopefully you have one on, on the top of your mind. Yeah, man, I'm, I've got to go with AMD. I mean, AMD is probably one of my favorite companies to follow just for earnings. You know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts uh, they made a really big acquisition of a company called Xilinx right now. They're kind of offering this whole buffet of of tech, of, of chips, of custom chips um, that can sell for tens of thousands of dollars, if not $40,000, if you're selling to the data center or even just a couple hundred bucks for a, for a CPU or a computer system. Um, it's a complex company, but it's one that it's just, I think, firing on all cylinders. I, I really am kind of looking forward. They, they guided uh, conservatively for the upcoming quarter, which, you know, has sold the stock off. But uh, I really kind of like the management team there. I'm looking forward to seeing what they have to say here. All right, Christoph. Yeah, uh, the puzzle look was because I didn't want to be boxed in with, with into an industry. I, I go all over the place. All right, all right. We can if if that that was uh, that came out the top of my mind. Whatever stock you have, that seems interesting. Yeah, the thing that the the one stock that I I really want to see what they say this quarter is Upstart because mm -hmm. it's an AI company, and as far as I would say the risk reward ratio here. I, I don't know of a, of a bigger one that you know <laughs> it could crash or it could go up. You know magnitudes, and I think there's there's a misperception of what this company does, and there's this this theory that well things are so bad, therefore loans are going to default, therefore the stock's not going to perform well. But I think in actuality, all that upstart is saying is we're going to do better than the banks. And so, yeah, defaults will still happen. But if we could continue to prove that what we do with our AI is more successful than what banks do, then that's the proof we're looking for. And this stock has more, more rebound in it, that the spring is so tightly coiled that any, any small piece of good news will be majestic. So I'll be watching like a hawk. All right, AMD and Upstart, those are two 
fascinating stocks to watch. Uh, we're going to close things out, but Simon, uh, where can people find you guys uh, just to close things out here? Yeah, it's uh, we're seveninvesting.com is our, is our website. We do have a lot of free content. Uh, I guess one thing that I think differentiates us, because there's a lot of st stock pickers out there, but I, I really, I think maybe one thing that might be a little underappreciated is the interactivity of the team with our members. Uh, we've got a discussion forum that kind of every day, we've got more questions coming up to talk about the stocks that we've recommended. It's not just publish and disappear. You know, Christoph and I and all the other advisors too are, are kind of, answering questions and talking through this crazy thing called the stock market and the volatility that's going through right now. I think this is a long-term journey that you should have questions and you should be asking about investing, if not individual stock recommendations. And uh, that that code that you mentioned, the money, you know, which thank you guys for partnering with us and offering this to our subscribers. If you do sign up and you use money at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe, uh, that's not just a hundred bucks off for your, your first year or your first order. Uh, that's something that would that would remain in place for for every year that you'd be an active subscriber. Um, it's twenty five percent discount until until and, and, and for as long as you stay active uh, for years in the future too. And so we we'd love to encourage people to to check that out. You know, check out our site, uh, chat with me and Christoph more in detail about the stocks that we're picking. And um, I'm I'm certainly enjoying it. I mean, this has just been a a two and a half year journey now with Seven Investing has been a, a ton of fun. You learn more and more every day. It opens your eyes to a lot of things that certainly I had not seen uh, previously. And, and I'm, I'm really having a lot of fun with it. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Oh, Christoph, anything else? It's been a blast uh, having joined the team. Uh, you could find me at the number seven flying platypus on Twitter. So seven <laughs> flying platypus. All right. That's a great handle. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we, now we got to get the disclosure. Ryan and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for joining. We'll see you next time.